Hello, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this upstream event, uh, My Entrepreneurial Journey. Um, I'm going to introduce um, Asish Saka, who's our speaker this afternoon. But first, I'd just like to give you a kind of a uh, quick introduction to Upstream because I know some of you uh, from uh, who have come in actually know about us, but I spotted some names I'm not familiar with. So Upstream is a partnership between Imperial College London and Hammersmith and Fulham Council. And HFF, for those of you who aren't local to London or indeed the UK, is a borough in West London. And it's about 15 minutes by tube uh, to central London. And it's where the BBC has historically been based and continues to have offices. Uh, Upstream's roots are in a local industrial strategy jointly published by Imperial and Hammersmith and Fulham Council. We've been around since 2018 and since then we have connected, supported and shone a light on the science, tech and creative industries in both uh, what I would say intentional and serendipitous ways. Our work is driven by the belief that local networks which facilitate collaboration and learning enhance the momentum at which organizations and areas, places grow. Team Upstream's vision um, is to turn Hammersmith and Fulham into a destination for the ambitious science, tech and creative organizations with a thriving ecosystem and with White City at the epicenter of an inclusive innovation district. If you're not already on our mailing list, please do sign up on our website. And for today, bang, 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 drum roll. Uh, we are delighted to bring to you Asish Saka, who is global CEO and co-founder of Salary Finance, which is a fast-growing fintech underpinned by a social purpose. Um, Salary Financed is based in Scale Space in White City, um, and uh, Scale Space opened its doors just about five, six months ago. And the business uh, Salary Financed is backed by the likes of Plenum Chalcott, Goldman Sachs, Royal London and Virgin Money. Salary Finance has over 200 employees and has just completed its Series D fundraise led by Blenheim Chalcott, Experian and Legal in general. Um, they've raised as a company $138 million to date and I'm sure we'll get a couple of questions on that during the process of this uh, session. Um, salary Finance's offering is uh, especially important, I think, at a time when the pandemic has blighted, blighted the finances and mental health of many families. And here in the UK, its clients include a quarter of NHS trusts and police forces and eight of the 10 UK's 10 largest supermarket chains and non-food retailers. Across the UK and the US, its platform is used by 500 employees and is available to 4 million people. Asesh launched uh, Salary Finance when he saw the impact that a lack of access to affordable financial services had on his children's nanny. And we get to ask him questions about that later on. And the company has won over 70 awards, including Money Ages Consumer, Consumer Champion of the Year and the Global Impact Award from the Mayor of London for its US growth. Asesh is also Chair of Trustees at MyBank, which is a leading youth money charity. And I think that's all I need to say, really. Uh, Asish, welcome uh, to you this afternoon. Thank you for being here. And uh, before we get started, um, I just want to say I've got some planned questions, but you need to put yours in the chat function and I will pick them up as we um, go along and kind of weave them into mine as best as I can. Asish, right. So um, you've just finished a Series D fundraising and 
as we said, with Blenheim Child Court, Experian and Legal in general. How is that and how much different is fundraising compared to under more uh, normal circumstances? How, what is it like? Uh, yeah, so uh, th thank you for uh, uh, having me on, this, on the programme, I very much appreciate it. Um, yeah, in, in terms of the fundraising, it was uh, entirely uh, remote, obviously very different to what it, what it usually, uh, usually is. Uh, and, and so I would say a lot of fundraising, particularly where you're raising money from US investors, there's a lot of traveling, you're meeting a lot of people, uh, a lot of it's based upon kind of relationships. Uh, I would say when you're kind of fundraising in, in a pandemic, which is very, uh, very unusual, it, it tends to be much more about the numbers uh, in terms of uh, you obviously don't get the opportunity to build the same level of relationships. So it's much more about the numbers, much more about the pitch. It's kind of fast tracked quite a bit. What, what, what I would uh, kind of what I would say is, in, in many ways, uh, you know, it has proven the thesis that you don't necessarily need to impact the world so much by traveling so much. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we still raised a good amount of money from good investors uh, with, without, you know, flying or, or doing any of those things. So, uh, yeah, I would say it's, uh, you know, I, I do enjoy meeting people. And so it was a shame uh, not, not to have had the opportunity to do so, but I'm sure the opportunity will come, but, but it would have still worked all the same. And with the uh, most recent round, uh, what are you hoping to do with that money? Where, what's your focus going to be? Uh, yep. Yeah, so, so we are, it's, it's a combination of, so we've got really three parts to our business. Uh, we've got our UK business uh, where we work with um, employers uh, and then we help their employees with their financial wellness in the UK. We have the same business in the US and then we have a new business that we're building with Experian to kind of help them uh, use employment and income data as, as well. Um, and so the, the, the money is a combination of things. Our core UK business is close to profitability now and so that doesn't need too much more money. Uh, the US, we have a lot of growth ambitions, and so um, so there's lots of capital going there. And, and then also with, with the new part of the business we're building experience, there's investment going in there as well. Got it. Can I just say on behalf of everybody on this call, you know, well done, congratulations, because, you know, getting money from anybody in regular times is difficult. And, you know, as you said, it was very much about numbers right now. And it's, you know, it's, I suppose it's got its cons, its pros and its cons having to do it remotely. But can we go back to the start? And could you tell us, you know, I mentioned a nanny just now, I said, can you tell us a bit more about how and why you started Salary Finance? Because most of us would go, right, nanny needs help, we'll help nanny, we might help nanny after, nanny after, but we don't go off and just go, right, I'm going to turn this into a business. So what confluence of factors made you think that? Yeah, absolutely. So very much, I would say, a kind of a confluence of factors. And so uh, I guess, you know, I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur, always wanted to kind of set up a business. And so for the first, you know, 10, 11 years of my career, you know, I was, you know, I worked in corporate, so I was a management consultant, so I would advise kind of large institutions. Um, and I was always looking for, you know, the, the combination of an idea that I believed in, you know, capital that would back it, and, you know, really the, the confidence to kind of make the leap. Um, and, and, and five years ago, those things uh, kind of came, came together. Um, and in terms of the genesis of the idea, so, um, so like I say, I have two children, we, we, you know, we, we have a nanny. And what I could see with our children's nanny is that she was very good at looking after our children, but she would also quite often be uh, quite stressed. Uh, and so you know, na naturally, you know, when someone's looking after your children, you kind of inquire as to, you know, what is it that's causing you stress? Uh, and and transpire that you know what was causing her stress was her her personal finances you know she she would uh, you know, she she was struggling to to manage manage her money, and and then it, it, that surprised me a little bit because you know we were paying her you know a, a good uh, kind of a good amount and so it wasn't clear to me 
you know, were we just, uh, were we not paying enough? Was it that she was bad at managing money? Were there other, other issues? Uh, as I kind of softly probed over, you know, over the months, uh, it kind of make, became clear that uh, she just had a lot of problem debt. Uh, so, so kind of debt which with a very high interest rate on it. So, so whenever we would pay her, uh, it wasn't so much that she wasn't being paid enough, she was being paid, you know, the national average, but it was that a lot of her income was going on high interest debt. And then so, so at the time, you know, I was a partner in a consulting firm working in lots of banks. And so I also had loans, but I would pay, you know, maybe four or five percent. And so it just kind of seemed strange to me that, uh, you know, my children's nanny would be paying such high, high rates. Uh, and so, so then my inclination was, OK, so why, why don't I help you kind of get a better loan? Why, why don't I help you get a bank loan, uh, consolidate your credit cards, whatever it might be? And then the reality is, you know, she had tried, um, but it was just impossible for her for her to do that. Uh, she was just unable to get access to mainstream mainstream finance. So the only option she really had was was all of this high cost credit, which kind of got her into kind of more and more uh, kind of vicious uh, vicious circles. So essentially, for her, what I had done is I had, you know, I said, well, okay, it doesn't really make sense for us, you know, to earn money for us to pay you and then you to pay off these high interest debts. Why don't I just pay off your kind of um, uh, debts that you have? essentially give you an employee loan um, we'll collect your repayments from your payroll so we know we're going to get paid uh, and, and then everyone's kind of better off at the at the end and then and really that kind of worked so we paid off her debts she was saving 100 to 150 pounds each month in interest uh, she paid off her debts much quicker she started to save she was very grateful to to kind of me and my wife and and, and similarly she did a better job of looking after our children so so all, all of those things kind of led to on an individual case something quite special and quite meaningful uh, and, and then because, because I worked in banks I, I could really understand that this problem wasn't just about my children's nanny but actually two in three people in the UK can't access mainstream finance uh, and they then have they're restricted to high cost credit cards payday loans other forms of high, high cost credit that was really the genesis of the idea around you know having helped one person you know can we do this on a much bigger uh, bigger scale um does said nanny know that she was the uh it, the start of a you know global takeover on the finance, uh, on the fintech front. Does she, she know what, what it's turned into? <laughs> she does, she does. She's very grateful still as well. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, can we also talk about, you know, we talked about Roots, and this is again Roots' question, which is when you've co-founded Salary Finance with Daniel Sharkini and Dan Cobley, um, how did you each decide that you wanted to come together to start a business um, and I suppose, what skills do you each bring to the table, which is, you know, complementary, similar, unique? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, about, about five years ago, you know, I essentially you know, I was putting my son to bed to sleep one day and I'd, you know, come up with the idea in my head of salary finance. I'm sure lots of people have lots of different ideas. And, and then for me, there, there was a nanny story, but also what, what, what I could see is that there was this much bigger problem in society um, that, that this was causing. And, uh, you know, I became really passionate about it. I, I could really see that actually, um, you know, if you were wealthy, creating more wealth was, you know, relatively straightforward. If you were less wealthy and you were in these cycles of debt, it was almost impossible to come out of. And so I, I started really becoming passionate about this whole area of inequality. Um, and, and then I was convinced that, you know, what, what I had done for my children's nanny, if employers did that for their nannies, big employers across the country, for, for, for their employees, they'd be able, be able to make a really big, big difference. In, in a sense, you know, offer an employee loan with the repayments collected from payroll. Um, so as a result, you know, you're reducing the risk and offering a great rate to everyone. Um, and then similarly, you know, helping em uh, employees um, save directly from their pay each pay period, offering insurance. 
I'd, I'd become pretty, uh, pretty convinced that this idea could work. But with, with any idea, I guess you need kind of capital to kind of really, you know, really scale it. Um, and then um, it was just by kind of fortune, really, that chap called Daniel Shikani, um, who, who I hadn't seen for a year at that time, uh, but he had gone to Harvard with one of my former colleagues. Uh, we had kind of got on, we had clicked, and then I just really kind of saw him uh, in the gym one day. Um, and, and actually, in many ways, when I saw him, I actually forgot who he was, even though we, we had been quite you know, close for about five years. I just hadn't seen him for a year, and I had, you know, hadn't seen him in the gym gear before. Um, kind of reconnected, we kind of got, got on really well. And so every week we would then start playing tennis together. And then, uh, uh, and, and then you know, I say to Daniel, look, I've got this great idea. I'm kind of keen to get it funded. Uh, and, and whilst I am quite good at ideas and, you know, you know the, the practice of business, uh, Daniel is Daniel is very, very well networked um, and has in his network a lot of people that uh, are, are investors, basically. Um, so we teamed up as a good combo where, um, you know, someone who had a good network with investors together with myself has a good, you know, good ideas and ability to run a business. And then the two of us then came, came together. Uh, we, we, we then started to go out five years ago to raise funding for the business with, with the original idea. Uh, and, and then we were fortunate to have a suite of options available in terms of where we'd raise funding for. Uh, we went, we chose Ben Michalcott, that they think the kind of model worked quite well for us in terms of the venture builder model. Um, and they, and, and, and with that, they were kind of kind enough for, you know, for, for one of their partners, Dan Cobley, um, to, to, be, to, to join us as a co-founder as well. Uh, Dan was formerly the head of Google in the UK. Um, and so it brings a lot of knowledge around technology, scaling companies, uh, and, and so on. Um, and so, so then the combination of Dan Ushkani, Dan Cobley, and myself, uh, it, it kind of felt like we, we bought the kind of three different areas that you would, you would need uh, in terms of running a business, uh, scaling tech, and raising funding. Um, and then and so we have quite complementary skills, uh, some overlapping, but we're not a huge amount of overlapping. And, and, and over the course of time, that's kind of served us, uh, served us well. Got it. So uh, one is you're the ideas, uh, Daniel's the network, and uh, Dan, I suppose, is, is capital because of Blenheim Chalcott, really. And actually, on that note, somebody's uh, pinged me a private question and uh, said, I have a couple of questions for Asish. And uh, it's not really a couple of questions, but it's a big question, which is, how did you approach legal and general and Blenheim and, and Blenheim Chalcott? Please, could you outline the process from start to finish? Okay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, uh, so, so, so a, few, a few things, and so, so I, I kind of mentioned that I was, you know, quite passionate about uh, uh, kind of social inequality, uh, and, and and for me, um, you know, for me there was the uh, you you have people that work in non for profits, and, and actually the, ch the chair of a non for profit, um, uh, and you have people that you know work in finance and commerce and business. Um, and it, it kind of struck me that um, actually, if you try to combine those two things together, so if you had people that really want to grow things, and if you have people that want to do good in the world, uh, if you brought those two things together, uh, we, you know, essentially kind of social impact, uh, uh, that you, you could really do kind of great, kind of great things. Um, and then at, at, at the time, legal and general uh, were, um, uh, were really big on this concept as well. It's quite a new concept at the time. Uh, and then they call it inclusive capitalism, where you don't run a business just to be financially successful. You know, that, that is a byproduct. You actually run a business to make a really big impact to society. Uh, and by doing so, you become financially successful. Um, and so the, 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 the real process to kind of get to legal and general and similar to Ben Shalcott was one, to honest, network was very, uh, very helpful. Uh, so obviously Daniel Shikani knew someone at Ben Shalcott and that was our entry into there. Uh, and that, that was where we got our first funding from. Uh, and then when we went for, when we went for Ben Shalcott to legal and general, uh, again, we had a connection there, which, which helped us kind of get in the door. But ultimately, what got us over the line is 
you know, that they're big believers in inclusive capitalism. Salary finance is ultimately a business which enables inclusive capitalism. Uh, so that really kind of met one of their criteria, and that, that allowed us to kind of get elevated, elevated through. So um, in, in, in terms of process, it, it wasn't so much of a process around there's a formalized way of getting investment, but we'd identified an institution that was very much aligned to what we believed in and what we were doing good work in. Uh, we convinced them that actually what we do could further their aims uh, in this area. Um, uh, and then we were able to progress, uh, progress from there. So I, I would say it's a combination of identifying a common connection. Um, you know, the, the, the reality is that um, you know, connections help in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of finding someone in common with, with the investor that, that you're looking to get capital from. Uh, there's just a level of kind of trust established there. Um, and after that, you know, finding, you know, pitching what you have to offer in a way which is very much aligned to, to, to what their own objectives are as well. Um, I've got a question around obviously the pandemic and you know you talked about purpose and aligned to that I suppose is the question of culture and has the pandemic made you change the way you think about you know the purpose of the company as well as you know culture? Uh, yeah absolutely so the um, uh, timing wise and so March last year the pandemic you know kind of kicked into force but uh, also we bought a company two weeks before that happened uh, and so, so we were a company of 100 people. We bought a company that had 100 people as well. And so, so suddenly we were 200 people. Um, and, and the company we bought was a competitor of ours. And so, you know, clearly when you're acquired by a competitor, there is, uh, you know, a, a slight culture shock as well, because, uh, you know, a company you've competed with for four or five years, suddenly you're now a part of, uh, and how does that work? And then when you, when you make that remote and you can't actually build face-to-face -face relationships with people because everyone is remote and the world is uncertain it, it kind of conflates a lot of a lot of things so so for us yeah the last year has been a combination of the pandemic but it's also been building culture of, of two organizations coming uh, kind of coming coming together uh, so, so we, we, we spent a lot of time uh, on culture over the past uh, the past year you know I would say when we grew from you know uh, me and co-founders to a hundred you know, pretty much at that scale culture is quite organic you know you choose the people you hire you know for, for me diversity is really important and so you know you, you can really you, you can do things quite organically um, but once you acquire a new company once you grow beyond 100 actually unless you're conscious about culture then you don't know which way it's going to go everyone likes to think you know everyone in their organization is open-minded um, you know they're, they're diverse they're inclusive we're getting the best of, of different people but you just don't know as you get as you get bigger and so you know we have done uh, lots of things you know we've brought in an external diversity and inclusion coach uh, to kind of help us make sure that you know all of our practices uh, are diverse they're inclusive that we're getting the best of people people feel they belong to salary finance regardless of their upbringing background you know socio-economic uh, uh, demographics uh, whether they joined us or, or the company we acquired um, you know, similarly, we are very conscious about, you know, uh, how difficult the pandemic is for people's personal lives. Uh, and so we're very conscious to be supporting where we can, flexing on hours where uh, kind of where, where needed. Um, and then we also just do a lot of communication as well. And so, um, uh, you know, we were doing daily stand-ups, you know, then they moved to weekly, they're kind of monthly now. Uh, we do weekly kind of written updates to the team. So we, we do lots of uh, kind of communications uh, just to make sure people feel, feel included. But yeah, culture is a huge uh, a, hu a huge part of it and for me you know, one of the things I've always said is that I, I didn't want to run an organization where externally it gets lots of plaudits but internally the, the organizational culture is just not happy and then for me that was actually quite common in tech uh, which is you know you you look at the founders of the companies and they look amazing on the outside 
you you speak to people on the inside and there's just sort of that organizational happiness. Uh, whereas for me, it was actually key, key that we have an organization that does great stuff, great values, uh, people really enjoy being there. Uh, and then the external stuff follows rather than trying to chase, you know, external headlines, but actually running an organization where, you know, the, the team don't really enjoy, enjoy being. Can we talk a bit about entrepreneurial pains, just, just kind of picking up on that particular word? Oops. And what aspects of being an entrepreneur have you found difficult, really? Difficult, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. So, uh, you know, look, on, on the whole, um, you know, I had for 10 or 11 years when I worked in big corporates, you know, I'd idolized being an entrepreneur. That was, that was my absolute dream. I'd watch, you know, Dragon's Den and all of these kind of things you know, really, really wanted to. And so I was always a bit worried that maybe when I became an entrepreneur, I wouldn't like it. And then, you know, or, or I wouldn't be successful. I kind of, what would, what would happen? And um, so, so overall, I'm you know, incredibly fortunate that, you know, I do a job that I really love. I do like being an entrepreneur, do love being an entrepreneur and I'm very fortunate with the opportunity, opportunities given. Um, as with anything in life, there's kind of, you know, kind of good, good things and not so good things. Um, in, in terms of the kind of things which are tough. So there is an element at which, um, uh, there is a lot of pressure. Um, so, you know, we have taken in a hundred million pounds of equity now. Uh, and, you know, clearly that is, you know, a combination of institutions, money, private individuals, money. Um, and there is clearly when you're taking people's capital, you want to make sure you're a good custodian of it. Um, you know, you know, we, we could have said, for example, oh, you know, the pandemic happened. And so that really impacted us. And so we weren't successful, but uh, there's always excuses you could come up with, but, but ultimately the difference between entrepreneurs with good ones and not so good ones is no matter the environment, they make it succeed. Uh, and, and to have that mindset and to make it happen, you take on a lot of personal pressure because the reality is, you know, everyone else in the organization can choose to leave. If things, if, if, if things get tough, you just move to a different job. You've, you've got a nice thing on your CV. I grow this from X to X and you move on. When you're the founder, when you're an entrepreneur, you don't have that luxury. You, you, you kind of need you. You, you know, you're obviously, you, you can't 100% guarantee it. But you really, you know, the, everything kind of stops with uh, kind of with you. You don't have the option to leave. And so, uh, so, so you, you you take a lot of responsibility. You know, you're you're managing other people's money, and and with that comes responsibility. Um, and and then similarly, you're 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 kind of trading off lots of things the whole time as well because. Um, you know, you can never do all the things you want, never do all the things the team wants, never do all the things the shareholders want. So you're always trading off different things. And, and with, when, when you're trading off things, some people you please, some, uh, some, sometimes you don't. Uh, and, and again, you just need to be able to kind of manage that. And, and all of that means it can be quite a lonely place as well, because ultimately you are the person uh, that is kind of shouldering, uh, shouldering a lot of this. So, so, so they're, 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 they're the kind of, I would say, you know, some of the kind of downsides offset by having great investors, great team, uh, you know, uh, your freedom and all those types of things. Uh, but yeah, they, 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 they're, definitely, uh, yeah, they're definitely challenges. And I would say it's definitely not, not for everyone as well. What is the key lesson you think entrepreneurs need to learn? Very, very good, uh, good, uh, good question. Um, so I would say you know, to, to be an entrepreneur, you really have to have the ability to kind of step out of yourself and look at yourself, uh, what you're good at, what you're bad at. Is your idea really good or is it just a pet idea? Can you raise funding yourself or do you need a co-investor? Is this really suited to you? Not So, so, so for me, um, you know, the real ability to critically analyze yourself the whole time 
Um, and, you know, on, entrepreneurs aren't perfect on every dimension, uh, but they know where they're strong, they know where they're weak. And as long as you're kind of strong in enough things and where you're weak, you can bring others in to support you, then you're completely fine. Entrepreneurs that tend to struggle, in my experience, are either people that think they're strong at everything uh, and don't have the, the kind of retrospection, or where they're weak, they haven't got enough support, either because they don't see it or they've just not been able to get it, which, which is tough as well. So, yeah, for, for me, it's, um, you know, you, you have to be really able to have a lot of empathy, really critique yourself the whole time uh, and uh, know where you're short, get others to help where, where you can. Uh, but but, but and there's a lot of kind of humility, uh, humility needed in that to, to really kind of work it, work it through. The, the, and actually, I, I would couch that to say that is what I have found. But, but equally, there are very successful entrepreneurs who are 100 percent cocksure uh, and they also go on to build brilliant things as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the different people can do it in different ways. But, but yeah, that, that, that's certainly what, what I found. So proper question is, you know, amongst you know, who are the entrepreneurs you have perhaps admired and why? Yeah, absolutely. So um, and it links to the last question, which is for, for me, I kind of admire people who are very different to me. Um, and so, you know, for someone like an Elon Musk, you know, he's probably not as balanced as I am, but he is exceptionally driven, exceptionally talented, uh, doesn't really care what anyone thinks and goes ahead. Uh, and, and, and sometimes I think, you know, whilst you know, I'm very proud of everything I've achieved with the people around me, actually, maybe if I was a little bit more American in that way, maybe if I did care a little bit about other people's thoughts, you know, maybe I could have, maybe could have done more. So, so for me, you know, I would say, you know, people like Elon Musk, people like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, pe people who haven't, um, you know, people who haven't kind of, you know, focused on popularity or, um, or you know, uh, being too malleable but actually have a vision and have really just gone for it is something because it's quite different to, to my style and my approach. It is something that I might, I might quite a lot as well. Got it. Um, we've got a, another question here from Peter, who is uh, obviously thinking very hard. Um, and just picking up on the point of vision, he said, how do you keep your team inspired following your vision and being creative while working remotely? And he said, it's challenging enough when, you know, uh, when for many when in-person contact in the office is missing and that challenge grows when the team size grows yeah, yeah absolutely so uh, right, right from the beginning you know anyone who joins our finance is very much joining you know what I would say what we call the kind of mission or the kind of vision um, and so, so ultimately um, you know we help people uh, like you said you know we reach about four million people so one in four NHS trust employees eight of the big 10 supermarkets uh, police force, 20% of the FTSE 100. So there are lots of people we help with their finances. And, and each time we help someone, we really change their kind of life story. And so if, if you go into Trustpilot, for example, you know, you know we, we have, you know, a couple of thousand reviews, a 4.9 out of five star rating. And there's just really great stories around, you know, how we have helped uh, help people. We, we help about a million key, key workers. We've been able to have a million key workers as an example. Um, and so what really keeps the team motivated is connecting their work to how we're helping people. Um, and and so, so we always share a lot of user stories. We share a lot of you know, our impact. Uh, and there's obviously then the growth which follows and, and the financial which follows as well. Uh, but, but, but for us, you know, for, you know the, the, the feeling that if you work at Sally Finance and if you work hard, you're going to make a big impact in society. You're going to be part of a really high growth uh, success story. Um, kind of really, really motivates people. So, so we always try to help people understand 
you know, not just what they're doing individually, but how that fits into something bigger and how that bigger is amazing on many fronts, uh, kind of, you know, kind of, kind of helps. It, it obviously, we're a year in now, so, so that's starting to, you know, wear down and we need to work harder. Uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, for, for us, kind of connecting it to a bigger vision is really, really important, being really, really consistent on that. So, uh, you know, we will interview our users when I do a monthly stand-up. You know, we will play those, we'll get testimonials, we'll look at our latest trust pilot score. So it's just a real kind of connection around the difference we're making every day. Can I uh, completely go the other way? A slightly geeky regulatory question, uh, mainly because it's of interest to me, and which is salary finance is also out in the US and you've, is, as you've said, you've got growth plans down there. How is the US market different from the UK one in terms of demand and regulation? Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, really, really different. And so it, it is essentially, uh, so we, we again, you know, as part of our philosophy around going big. And so, you know, we didn't want to be just in a part of the US, we wanted to be live in all 50 states working with the biggest US companies. Um, and then so it's essentially the way it works is that every state is almost like a country, which has its own regulation. Um, and so you know, in, in the UK, you have the FCA, in the US, you have 50 state regulators. Um, so there is a fairly significant amount of work to be done to be kind of licensed and compliant in every single uh, kind of single state. Uh, we, we started off by partnering with the federal bank, which gave us some ability to operate across all states. Uh, but, but as you scale, then, you know, you kind of need to think about whether that model scales or not. So we, we, you know, as well as having a federal bank partnership, we're kind of getting licenses across all 50 states just to make sure we're kind of belt and braces covered as well. Um, so yeah, it, it is basically 50 times uh, the you know the, the kind of compliance requirements that you would have in uh, in the UK. So, so, so it's a fairly sizable job. Uh, but, but equally, the market is much bigger. You know, UK uh, employees are very stressed about their finances. US employees are even more stressed about their finances. Huge levels of inequality, um, and so there was a lot of demand for what we do there, uh, kind of there there as well. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we've kind of, uh, it, it's a pretty big bar, uh, but, but again, we've been fortunate with our backers. Uh, we have some great team members in the US as well, uh, and, and that's kind of really helped us uh, kind of get going there as well. Gosh, it's a great story, isn't it? Especially, and I, I do take your point, if we think inequality is bad in the UK, it's, it's a greater problem in the US. And uh, I'm just going to ask a bit of what you do outside work, which is uh, and a point I want to pick up on is a question is, uh, is your chair of trustees at my bank. And I suppose the question is, you know, you're very uh, financially aware, you're very educated on that front. And, you know, there's some people who are well educated, but may not be financially educated. And there's some people who are not well educated and are not financially educated. What is the state of financial education in the UK? And could you tell us a bit more about, you know, what my bank does as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, so my bank is a charity, uh, the kind of UK's largest charity focused on the young and vulnerable. Um, and, and, and the reason why it exists is, you know, in general, um, you know, young people don't get taught about finances. Um, and, and, and the problem is then you don't learn good, good habits. Uh, and actually, when you look at the state of adults, most adults in the UK don't know how to manage their finances. So you know, one in four don't have more than a hundred pounds in savings in case something went wrong. Um, you know, this generation is the first generation, millennials will be the first generation that will be poorer than their parents. Um, you know, investments are massively down, debt is massively up. So, 
you know, clearly adults struggle with their finances. They then have an inability to teach their children uh, and their children are then expected, young people are then expected to come into the world and be kind of great with money in a world where there's so much inequality. So, so my, my bank exists to, to, to provide financial education to young children, uh, particularly in vulnerable circumstances um, to help them, you know, uh, to, to help uh, them make a good start in, in life. Uh, and, and they focus very much on people where they don't really have the opportunity to make a mistake. You know, everyone can make, make a mistake. There's no problem. But the, the problem is, if you are young and vulnerable and you don't have wealthy parents, as an example, when you make a mistake, that, that sets your life trajectory very uh, in a very poor direction. If you have rich parents, you make a mistake, that's fine. Your parents will come in and help you. And then, you know, you've got a buffer there. So, so inequality gets really exasperated. Uh, by what you do with the young, um, and actually the young get no financial education, nothing meaningful, um, so it's a real, real problem. Um, so, so what my bank does, for example, is um, you know, when, when children are in care uh, and they're about to get their first home, uh, so you can imagine someone that's come out of care, they're about to get their first you know, kind of you know, council-supported property, uh, you know, they don't know how to read the electricity meter, they don't know how to set up an energy account, they don't know what council tax is, they don't know about budgeting, they don't know about saving, and so you know, how, how can you expect them to kind of succeed in life? And then quite often they get onto wrong trajectory. So, you know, one of their programs is Money House, for example, where, you know, these types of young and vulnerable children, they come into a house for a week. And over the course of a week, they learn all of these vital skills, you know, how you put a credit score, how you read the meter, how you budget, you know, what, you know, government grants are available to you. And it sets them off on the right, um, you know, they're kind of the right, the right track. Um, and, and it does it in lots of different areas, you know, whether it's people going into youth, uh, uh, kind of, you know, institute, uh, you know, kind of, you know, youth groups or you know, lot, lot, lots of different, uh, lots of different areas. And another thing which is really important is, you know, the, these aren't, you know, my bank is all about training in person. Uh, and, and these aren't people that are, you know, that, that work for a big bank in a suit, you know, trying to train someone that they find it really hard to empathize with because they've never lived that. You know, quite often my bank trainers are people that have taken the course themselves that have then, you know, you know, really embraced it and then teach others as well. Um, so they could very much uh, kind of very much empathize. So, yeah, there, there is a big one of the things I'm very passionate about is, you know, as well as, you know, you know Sorry Finance is focused on helping adults become financially healthy and happier or kind of working people. Uh, my bank is very much on uh, young people um, uh, through financial education. Uh, and so, that, yeah, that, that, that's something which, 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 you know, which I actively support as, as well. Great, thank you. Um, now about children, and uh, can we just cast back to your uh, youth? Let's play uh, psychologist. Um, and could you just tell us? And there's very little out there about you on this point. And I know some entrepreneurs really like to talk about, you know, their own life story. And you don't do that so much. And your key story is very much the nanny story. So, what was your own childhood like? And what were your formative experiences? Uh, yeah. So you know, I was born in Leicester. Um, my parents were kind of first generation migrants from uh, from India, um, you know, were really kind of came here alone. So, so they didn't have, a, have have like a family unit around them or support around them. Um, and I guess when you come from a new country uh, and you start up from scratch, you know, making your way and finances are, 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 are a challenge. Um, and so I would say my kind of formative years were um, uh, you know, you know, going to state school, you know, you know, in, you know, in, you know, in a city life, uh, you know, enjoying it, but, but also, you know, watching my parents as first generation migrants really kind of make themselves and then today just being incredibly uh, uh, ad admiring how, how you go on that journey of coming into a country uh, with nothing and then kind of building yourself, uh, yourself up and your, and your, and your, and your, and your family. Um, uh, and then, you know, you know, a lot of the, uh, 
you know, you know, a lot of the kind of you know, even things we do with salary finance today, uh, where we do financial education and things, or you know, some of the basic lessons you know that that I'd see my parents at the time uh, deploying, um, which, which actually today, you know, given the fact that one in one in four people have no savings, just don't deploy. There's very much a culture of you know spend first and save later, whereas actually when you come in as a migrant uh, into a new country, you know, you need to really be budgeting and all of those all of those types of things. So yeah, uh, you know, very much kind of state school. Uh, inner city, um, you know, first generation kind of migrants. Uh, but but let's say the, the thing which uh, was was really important uh, is, is education. My, my, my parents were huge on, uh, you know, you can have freedom in every way if you uh, if you study hard, get a good job, and you'll kind of do uh, kind of do well. And so that was uh, uh, that was uh, very much instilled. And actually, I would say that academically, I wasn't brilliant. As in, you know, I, I always got good grades, went to a good university, got a good job, but. Uh, I had to overcompensate with hard work uh, because uh, because I was academically decent, but to get really good grades, which I generally got, required a ton of a ton of, a ton of work, uh, which again was um, you know kind of supported by uh, just kind of parents uh, parents philosophy. They sound good, like good parents, I dare say. Um, so, final question: What does a typical day look like for you? How do you carve out time to think? And is what what are your hobbies? The stuff you yeah. do for fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I actually, I have made some changes going into this year, and so uh, I actually read a book called uh, "Thinking Like a Monk" by Jay Shetty, uh, which uh, which I found really, really, really kind of great. And so, uh, actually, this year, my, um, my my routine is a bit different. Uh, I don't always do this. This is my ideal routine, but uh, what I do like to do is, um, you know, I work really hard in the day, and so uh, I'm kind of back to back generally. Evenings I try to keep quite free. Weekends I never work. Um, and then if I do need to work, then I'll, I'll kind of work one to two nights really, really late to make sure the other nights kind of flow. Uh, I, I am trying to do a little bit of meditation uh, in the mornings. I, I find that I've never done it before, but, but actually after reading like uh, Think Like a Monk, there, there was a lot of things which are quite attractive about being a monk in terms of helping with your mindset. Uh, so I try to do that. I try to read uh, where I can to kind of relax. I, I used to watch a lot of trashy TV. I still watch trashy TV, but I tried to carve a little bit of time out uh, to read as well, um, and, then, and then outside of, you know, outside of work, you know the reality is, um, you know one of the sacrifices you make is also family and children, um, and so you 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 know you you perennially feel guilty for not spending enough time with either, uh, and so you know I don't do a ton of amount of stuff. You know, I would say I enjoy my job, and so actually I enjoy my you know what I do in the day, but actually spare time I will try to spend with my children, with my wife, and where I can do things with them. Uh, that also I enjoy. There's not a massive overlap there, but but we're, we're, we're trying to find it uh, just to kind of make that side of the equation equation work. But but again, I think if you if you're an entrepreneur, then really unless you absolutely love it, you get very little time to yourself, um, and so then that equation becomes quite quite difficult. Okay, well done. Meditation, thinking like a monk, and I, I mean on on the not working on weekends. I suspect a lot of people will find that really admirable in somebody like you. We're getting a really uh, a lot of thank yous uh, from people. Um, and I always believe that the chat function says thank you better than the host. So it's much better if I just read it. Asish, thank you so much for a really inspirational session. Raf says, thank you very much for sharing your experience. Peter says, exciting story. Rahi says, truly insightful. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Absolutely. And Val said, thank you, Asesh, for being so easy to understand and humble and approachable.